Welcome to episode 8 of Is It Shane Ritchie? The Adventures of a Wrestling Journeyman. My name is Carl Stewart and I'd just like to say thank you for taking the time to listen today, whoever and wherever you are. Thank you again for taking the time to share our posts on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you also for all your amazing feedback from the last few episodes. Please do keep sending that feedback to us as it really does help us to improve and grow. We are now available on a number of different podcasting platforms, including Spotify and various others, and you can find links to all of the various places you can now find us through our page at www.conroypod.vze.com That's www.conroypod.vze.com .vze.com You can also download the episodes from there and the page does contain something of a rogues gallery of various people who've either appeared on the show or who we've mentioned in various anecdotes and stories. Please do check that page out and let us know what you think via our social media pages which you can also find linked from there. If you enjoy this show, please do continue to like, share, retweet and mention us to others and we will continue to add more 100% original content on each and every episode. This episode sees part two of our exclusive interview with the legendary Mr John Short. As with part one, the entire episode this week is dedicated to that interview but our regular features such as short stories, quote of the week and song of the week will return next time out. We will also have a number of other new interviews coming soon, including the return of our very popular guest from episodes 4 and 5, Spinner McKenzie, amongst others. So do keep a lookout for updates on our social media pages in the very near future. But for now, sit back relax and enjoy part two of the legendary Mr. John Short. Let's talk a little bit about John Short, the person, rather than John Short, the wrestling MC. I know you have an interest, we've talked about it a little bit already, in Speedway. Tell us a little bit more about John, the person. Oh, not really a lot to say. Educated at Bristol Cathedral School. I wasn't in the choir. Well, I was briefly till they found out what was wrong with the choir. And um, subsequently worked for Martin's Bank which eventually amalgamated with Barclays. I won't say uh, we're taking it over because Martin's had 600 odd branches, mainly in the north of England. Left them because I was 
hamstrung on doing anything else really because in those days no computers and you didn't know what time you were going to finish. Uh -huh. I've got memories of being on one of the big hills in Bristol and letting off lifeboat flares on November the 5th because we hadn't been able to get out and this was 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> Don't ever let anybody tell you that in those days anyway bank staff were straight-laced because we were very far from it. <laughs> Some of the stories would make your hair curl, if you had hair of course. <laughs> but uh, after that I went for a couple of years to ESNA Robinson who were printers in Bristol in the sales office, didn't particularly like that. Went to Martin Sun and Hall who were best known as printers for the tobacco industry again in Bristol, didn't particularly like that. Then went to Bristol Waterworks, because I thought people were always going to need water, and worked there for 24 and a half years, amongst other things dealing with people's complaints, being sent out to deal with them. They didn't put me on that for too long, because I usually agreed with the people that they, what they were complaining about. They were usually right anyway, and the idea was that you pacified them, you didn't agree with them. Uh -huh. But at the age of 50, I was made redundant, offered the chance of redundancy or early retirement. I took redundancy because I got a small payout and a small pension. Up to that point, I'd been working fairly steadily in different things with the wrestling uh, as a part-timer. And then I worked for an agency under what was technically known as light warehouse work. Two of the firms I worked for offered me a permanent job. One of them was a mushroom farm, and I thought, well, working with the wrestling, I see enough in the dark and I'm fed enough shit, I don't want to uh, get into the, <laughs> doing that with the mushrooms as well. Another one was a card printing firm, but I was also offered the chance to tour with Shaky Stevens and also with Ori, and I thought, right, well, I've got a reasonable amount invested. I'm not rich or anything like that, but enough to keep me going if I have to. So I, I more or less moved full-time into the wrestling. I don't have a luxury lifestyle. My house is falling down around my ears, literally and sometimes, but providing I fall down before the house does, I'm not too worried. I've made many good friends over the years through the wrestling and through the speedway as well, and very few enemies that I'm aware of. And I've travelled the world with the speedways, 27 different countries. With wrestling, I've been all over the British Isles, literally all over. So I've got no complaints. I've had no problems, like everybody does, and it's not all been a bed of roses. It's sometimes been a bed of nails. But I think I'm fortunate enough to come out of it fairly well. I wouldn't like people to think I've been there, done that, got the T-shirt, and everything's been wonderful. But uh, on the whole, I think I've been fairly lucky. Outside of wrestling, you've also emceed uh, a number of other things over the years, including Thai boxing, a wedding, and something I didn't know about until you told me recently, darts. Tell us a little bit more about some of those other things that you've emceed besides wrestling. Well, the wedding, a good friend of mine that I've known for many, many years, I met through Speedway in the probably about 1980, I didn't know weddings had MCs. Apparently it's an American idea, and he asked me if I would MC his wedding. 
So thank you very much for the ask. I'm very flattered. I did so. Basically, it involved organising various things on the day and acting as Toastmaster. I started off by saying that I'm not a Toastmaster, I'm actually a wrestling MC, but there is a connection between the two. The groom fell for the bride, one fall. She submitted to his proposal, one submission. They're a knockout together and I'm sure no one would disqualify them from a happy life together. The speech went down like a lead weight. No reaction whatsoever. <laughs> then introducing the bride's brother, who was acted as best man, I introduced him as her sister, completely unintentionally. <laughs> I made a complete whatnot of it, and that went down really well. Got terrific laugh. <laughs> so it doesn't say much for my uh, prowess as a wedding MC. I never was never asked again. Although we're still very good friends. I've also, being a Speedway fan, I have announced quite a bit at the Speedway track at Newport in uh, Gwent, which is now closed, sadly. Not because I was the announcer. Well, you say that. Well, no, it closed considerably after I was there. I've also, at the same place, done a couple of commentaries on DVDs and some interviews although I wouldn't claim to be a particularly good interviewer or interviewee, as you can hear on this uh, podcast. Yeah, agreed. Um, Thanks very you know. much. <laughs> You're supposed to give me confidence. I presented the season awards at the Bristol Speedway Supporters Club on one night. I think probably I was asked to do that because I was the only one that had a dinner suit. But anyway, it went down quite well. I compared a darts night for the Gloucester... Speedway Supporters Club, sundry other little things like that, but it's always something to put on your CV, and it's a, a new experience. Yeah, um, and as I mentioned before, you also uh, emceed a few tie boxing shows for, oh, yes, for, I've forgotten that. for that, Steve Logan. Yeah, that was Steve Logan Jr., uh, the guy from Birmingham, not the older Steve Logan, uh -huh. who I've never worked with. I often saw him, but never worked with him. Steve had seen me MC wrestling shows. In fact, I'd MC shows he was on. And he put on, I think, two Thai boxing shows. Morai Thai, I think was the technical name of the uh, Muay Thai, yeah. style, at the Pavilion in Bath. And he asked me if I would MC them. I said, I'll certainly do it, but I know absolutely nothing about Thai boxing. I've never even seen it. I don't really know anything about it. He said, well, the guys will put you right. And they did. They helped me enormously. The shows both, I think, were sellout. And it was an enjoyable experience. They told me all I needed to know, and I got away with it, presumably. So he asked me to do the second one. It was, once again, an interesting variation. Uh -huh. Of course, as any wrestler who's ever been in contact with you will know, one of your other interests besides wrestling is collecting autographs. How did that all start for you? And tell us a little bit about the incredible collection that you've amassed over the years. Well, as I mentioned earlier on, I think, I've always been told, or often been told, I should say, when asking for autographs, don't be a punter. 
that, as I mentioned earlier on, the response has always been no punters, no shows. Uh -huh. But 99% of the people I've asked have always been happy to sign. One interesting character who I was always a bit wary of, I'm not frightened of wrestlers, but this guy always unnerved me. He was a Canadian who came here for Dixon and he worked under the name of the Mongolian Mauler. Uh -huh. Basically he was a complete nutcase. He had a, an open cut on his forehead which he used to keep open by brushing with a toothbrush in the showers. I asked him for his autograph when he first appeared here and he signed it, tore it up and ate it. And this continued every time that I asked him, he was here for a few months, every time I asked him he would do exactly the same thing. And the last time he worked over here, I think it was a, a local show which I went to, I asked him again, I gave him the sheet of paper, he signed it, gave it back to me and said you deserve that. But um, <laughs> I was a bit unnerved on one occasion because I emceed a show, I think it was in Cardiff Student Union, again for Brian Dixon. Brian wasn't available and the Mongolian Mauler was in charge. And I thought, my God, I'm in the SH1T here. <laughs> but he was very professional. Uh, he told me exactly what he wanted with regard to the show. I did it and he thanked me afterwards. But he still continued to tear up and sign the autographs until that very last show. So um, that's probably the best story. How I got into collecting autographs? Well, I've always been a variety in theatre fan and as I mentioned earlier on, I was at Bristol Cathedral School. We had Saturday morning school at that time. And to get back to the bus stop, I would walk past the stage door of the Bristol Hippodrome, which was in the days when it was twice nightly variety. And I'll put a date on this by saying that Tom Jones appeared there in twice nightly variety, was replaced halfway through the week by Marty Wilde, and Marty Wilde did much better business. Another one who appeared there at this time was Shirley Bassey, and we're talking of twice nightly variety. Anyway, a lot of the performers were stood outside the stage door, and I thought this would be a, a nice, easy, and interesting hobby. So I started collecting them. It didn't turn out to be particularly easy a lot of the time, but it was interesting and still is. I still collect. As regards to wrestling, I thought, well, I collect theatre, why shouldn't I collect wrestling? And that's always been the case, and I still do. 99% of the people are quite happy to sign. If it's a villain, they'll probably sign backstage for you, but uh, even then, it's, uh, it's a signature. and It's a silly hobby, perhaps, but it's harmless, and you meet interesting people. Well, of course, something you mentioned, your collection isn't just made up of wrestling autographs, by any means. You have a wide range of autographs from all across various different branches of entertainment and I want to put in another listener question at this point which is from Darren Benedict who Text. we know better yes as Tex Benedict mm -hmm. and he asks which of your autographs do you cherish the most? Well as regards wrestlers probably one that not a lot of people nowadays unless they're an historian will know of, and that's a guy called George Hackenschmidt. Yes. George Hackenschmidt was a megastar 
probably bigger than people like Hulk Hogan, anything like that. There were four mile long queues at Marble Arch to get to the venue he was wrestling at. We're talking of the early years, I would think, of the last century. Yeah. I went to a theatre show, supposedly the last show ever at the old Metropolitan Theatre in the Edgeway Road in London. There was a subsequently another one. Uh, a venue that I used to go to regularly for Paul Lincoln's Saturday night wrestling shows. I would go up on the train for the day from Bristol. I would do a live TV show in the afternoon to watch. Somebody like Lime Grove Bass or Wembley Town Hall. And then I'd go to Paul Lincoln's show in the evening. And I saw people like Shirley Crabtree there for the first time. Sky High Lee, who was about six foot ten, uh -huh. and they used to use his back as a dartboard. Apparently, that's the story. Ricky Starr, who was a ballet dancer, uh -huh. uh, actually a Broadway chorus dancer, but very good performer. But uh, anyway, long story short, again, I went to this concert, and it was a lot of the real old timers, and I mean old timers. Ida Barr was there, who was a musical star in the 1890s. Wow. And introduced in the audience was a guy who'd come there with Wee Georgie Wood, who himself was a musical star in the 20s and 30s. And this was George Hackenschmidt. Wow. I thought, <laughs> wow, that uh, is a guy that I must get. He was sat in a box. I went up and I asked if he'd mind signing an autograph. He was delighted to do so. Very pleasant, very polite. I don't think the majority of people there knew who he was, or who he had been, or what he had been, I should say. But as regards theatrical autographs, I don't know, Alfred Hitchcock. I came across him in Covent Garden when he was filming Frenzy. I went, when he finished shooting, I went up asked if he'd mind signing an autograph. He had a six foot twelve American minder with him. The minder said, Mr. Hitchcock does not sign autographs. Mr. Hitchcock said, oh yes, he does. Sign the autograph, which was a little drawing of himself, as it used to be the caricature on the start of his TV programmes. Uh -huh. It's very pleasant. But it's largely a matter of luck. I uh, went to the Hippodrome in the early 1980s to see a musical called Yakety Yak. I don't normally get the chorus of a musical. On this occasion, one of them came out stood there having a cigarette, I think, quite young, probably 18, 19. I thought, well, she's there, I'll ask her anyway. Uh, she signed for me, and that was Catherine Zeta-Jones, who's now supposedly one of the most difficult people in the world. She was very <laughs> pleasant, and she'd probably deny it ever happened now, because it was a long time ago, and she might not care to admit to her age now, although she's not that old, I'm sure. As regards to that, that's how it started, and that's the odd story, you know. Mm -hmm. Bob Barrett, who's a good friend of mine, I've got his autograph on umpteen different names, and he always says, oh, have you got me under today's name, you know? <laughs> well, we always used to joke that um, you would ask for a new autograph every time somebody wore a different pair of boots or a different, uh, oh, no, no, different yeah, set of wrestling gear. But um, would you like to sort of put a, a rough number on the the amount of autographs. I know at one point you said to me that you'd got at least 40,000 in your collection. Would you like to put a, like a rough number on what you've got? Absolutely impossible. 
I don't get so many nowadays because I used to go to London to a show. You could do three shows in a day, theatre shows, 2.30, get the 11.30 train back. But now the hobby has been spoilt by what I would call professional collectors. They will get an autograph for you at a price. Right. Now to me, the interest has always been collecting the autographs and meeting the people. Yeah. And now, particularly since John Lennon was shot by a so-called autograph collector, a lot of the artists are very, very wary about doing anything, particularly the Americans that come over here. Security now is over the top. I appreciate they have to have security, but it was over the top. Uh -huh. So the fun of the hobby is largely gone. In more recent times, I've got quite a lot of circus artists because I'm a bit of a circus fan as well. And that has got a tie in with wrestling to some extent because in the early 60s or around that sort of time, a lot of the circuses, and particularly I'm thinking of Chipperfields and various others, would stage a wrestling show in their tent, put on by a reputable promoter. Paul Lincoln did a lot of them on circus artists' day off. And they used to do very, very well. I've got memories of seeing one at Western. My wife at the time and myself were asked if we would drive the wild man of Borneo <laughs> back from Western to Temple Meads, Bristol Railway Station, which we did. And we did not get a word out of him the whole journey. He was actually a Sikh called Ganga Singh. But as far as I'm aware, he never worked under that name. But with regard to circus and wrestling, in recent times, and I'm talking of four or five years ago, I think probably from Colombia and that area, there was a act which appeared in several circuses, which consisted of a wrestling match between two acrobats, and the ring was a trampoline. Now this doesn't sound much, but they rigged a ring up on, with the floor of it being a trampoline, which, if you don't know, trampoline is a, a bouncy surface. Mm -hmm. And they were using genuine wrestling holes. The audience got so far involved in it that they were cheering for one or the other. And it was an absolutely superb act, even if you had no interest in wrestling. The acrobats, the trampoline work was brilliant. The last I heard of them, they were working in a circus on the continent. Even today, there are a few promoters, and I think LDN is one, that do try and put shows on in circus tents. Although LDN are, are fallen out with one or two people, I believe, so that uh, may not happen now. Mm -hmm. But that's another interest. Well, of course, apart from wrestling, quite a lot of the wrestlers have sidelines. A couple that spring to mind in the acting front, Leon Aris was better known probably in later years as Brian Glover. That's right, yeah. As a wrestler, he was probably a comedy villain, best describes him. Yeah. But as an actor, he came to the fore in the film Kes mm -hmm. and subsequently acted in the West End and in a lot of films. I saw him perform in the West End in a play, I think by Terence Rattigan, called Bequest to a Nation. He had a large part and... He, you needn't laugh, he had a large part in the play, <laughs> shall we say, and I'm was glad actually you... very good and got very good reviews. I'm, I'm glad you clarified that. Yes, perhaps I should have done. 
couple of other wrestlers that spring to mind. Yori Borienko. Did he have a large part? I don't know. Uh, yes, he did in the film. Oh, okay. He was chief villain. Was chief villain in one of the James Bond's films. And possibly to older people, a guy who was very, very well known, Daslu Joe Cornelius. Yeah. A superb wrestler and a great, great showman. Co-starred with Joan Crawford in a film called Trog. And also appeared with Harry Seacombe both on tour and at the London Palladium. I can vouch for the truth of that, because I actually saw him on tour. But Cornelius, if you can get hold of his book, which I think is probably now out of print, called yeah. Thumbs Up, mm -hmm. he describes his contest in Bath, Bath Pavilion, with another guy who was very, very well known in another field as well as in wrestling, and that was Primo Carnera, yeah. the former world boxing champion. He worked quite a lot for joint promotions, and as I say, the contest with Cornelius is described in that book very interestingly. A couple of other boxers who became well-known wrestlers, obviously the one many people will know is Randolph Turpin, uh -huh. again a former world champion. The more recent wrestler Jackie Turpin was related to Randolph, I believe, as a cousin, right. although I am not absolutely certain on that. Randolph was a former world middleweight boxing champion who became a wrestler when money became short. I seconded him on a number of occasions and he was a very, very nice man. His main move as a wrestler was the forearm smash, not unsurprisingly. But sadly, he committed suicide in 66. That's right, yeah. Another guy that I don't know a lot about, but I've spoken to people who know more about boxing than I do, and I'm told he was a very good champion boxer, was a guy from France called Charles Humes. He worked for 20th Century Promotions, or Palatine Chambers Halifax, which was in fact Max Crabtree, and another promoter called Norman Berry. So they were quite well known. And another one which I've been told of recently, who wrestled in the mid-60s, I know him as a boxer, although I know little about boxing, but I know he was a top-line Welsh boxer, and that was Joe Erskine. Uh -huh. He apparently wrestled for a while. Then there's other people of the more current era who do work as stuntmen. Three of them spring to mind. Ollie Lloyd, a very promising young wrestler from Gloucester, Cheltenham area. J.D. Knight, who is well known in the West Country and I believe more nationally nowadays. And also Justin the Hammer Sison. All three of them do stamp work. And you're quite likely to see a wrestler in a pantomime as well. Yeah, you could laugh. Some will say it's pantomime in the ring, but I'm talking of pantomime on the stage. Five that spring to mind here is, of course, Jackie Palo, uh -huh. Mr. TV, who was a well-known actor anyway, yeah. and featured in the very first contest I ever saw, as I mentioned earlier on, and published a book called You Grunt, Are Grown. That's right, yeah. Supposed expose. It's very amusing to read because there's so many mistakes in names and details in there that it's hilarious although I don't think it was intended to be funny. Other ones that did pantomime that I'm aware of, Mr. T, the 
big American star from, I think it's the A-Team, yeah. the programme. He did pantomime, I believe, in Liverpool, although I stand to be corrected on that. Bomber Pat Roach starred at the Birmingham yeah. Hippodrome in pantomime. I can vouch for the next one, Mel Stewart from Kent, who actually played Abenaza in Aladdin at the Central Hall in Chatham, and I did see that. And the great lady wrestler, Mitzi Muller, who appeared in pantomime as co-star with a guy best known, a comedian best known for comparing new faces on television, a guy called Nicky Martin. Mm -hmm. And she appeared as co-star at St George's Hall in Blackburn in the late 70s. Once again, I can confirm that was the case, because uh, I was sat in the front row along with my wife at the time. Uh, Mitzi saw us and dried completely on stage because she didn't know we were going to be there. <laughs> well, she'd probably deny that now. It is a fact. Uh, she was very good, actually, as were the others. I can't vouch for Mr. T because I didn't see him, but certainly Palo was good. Mm -hmm. And um, his son was reasonably competent, although I, his chief role I ever saw him in was as a corpse yeah. in the, uh, a Brian Ricks play at uh, the Playhouse in Weston. He was assistant stage manager and chief corpse. And JJ Palo actually worked as a dresser for Brian Ricks for a, a good while as well. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, he, he was always got on well with Jackie. I believe he died quite recently. Uh, yeah, a couple of years back. Um, I always thought he was actually a better wrestler than his father. I worked with him a little bit at Hamelock when I first started. He was part of that crew that Andre Baker had put together some of which was completely new guys and some of which was a couple of experienced old hands that um, Andre had worked with for, well, yeah, actually for Palo when he did the TV in the early 90s. Yeah. Well, I only ever worked for Jackie Senior on his promotion, The Star That Presents the Stars, Yeah. Uh, once. I was on holiday in Margate and he was putting on a show at Dreamland there in the ballroom. Oh, ah, OK. So I went along to watch and he asked me to timekeep. I never managed to get paid for that, but uh, it was an interesting experience. I always got on okay with him. He did, for a while, go into partnership with a guy we mentioned earlier on in the podcast, John Anthony. Okay. And I think it was the, the con man with the con man sort of <laughs> thing. But the shows weren't bad, and I did do a couple of jobs for them. I always got paid, so... I, I was reasonably happy. It didn't pay a lot, but it paid, so yeah. I enjoyed it. Going back to emceeing now, uh, albeit in slightly different circumstances, you've got to tell us uh, your experiences a few years ago now in announcing at a mud wrestling show. <laughs> yes, I have memories of that. Uh, they were put on by the guy we mentioned earlier on, John Coppin. When I'd gone around putting out posters into shops, people had often said, oh, it's not mud wrestling, is it? I used to have to say no, and I would tell John that we'd been asked about this. So he decided he was going to uh, put on some mud wrestling. <laughs> he picked six venues, asked me if I would post to them. I said yes, because they were all in my general area. Of the six venues, three of them were told they would lose their license if they put it on. One of them was the biggest gay pub in Bristol, which when he said he was going to do it, I didn't know it was a gay pub even. 
but they pulled out straight away when they realised that, that it was a gay pub. One of the rugby clubs refused point blank. Exeter, they wouldn't even put a poster up in the sex shop, never mind anywhere else, because the, the poster supposedly had a girl in a bikini covered in mud. Now it looked, and that, that was sworn by the guy that did the posters for John, that it, it she was dressed. It looked on the poster as if she was in the nude. Right. And also, they very stupidly had named the tour the schoolgirl tour to please tour. Oh. Uh, schoolgirl, obviously, straight away. That's yeah. That. No, no. Anyway, the only place that put it on in the end was Bridgewater Rugby Club. I was asked to MC, which I said I would do, providing I didn't get in covered in mud. The ring was a paddling pool. The mud was genuine mud. I spoke to Ian McGregor subsequent to that. Now, Ian had put on mud wrestling shows very successfully years previously, but they had used what is called stage mud, the right. things that's used in films. John used genuine mud mixed with cat litter. The girls that wrestled, as I say, this was in a paddling pool as well, the girls that wrestled were mainly, they were very nice girls, talked to them, they were mainly pole dancers, and that style of performer. Anyway, there were only about 30 people at the show, which was a disappointment because he'd expected big crowds. Uh -huh. Subsequently, at the end of the show, two of the rugby players ran in, jumped in the pool in the nude, well, we handled that all right, that went as it, the punters enjoyed it, so so what? Then one of the audience was a taxi driver. He was thrown into the mud by his mates, fully clothed, and uh, some mates to have. But anyway, he came up to me and said, where can I change, where can I wash, you know, what to use the towels? I said, you can't, the girls have used them all. So at that point, he decided he was going to use my dinner jacket as a towel. It is the only time I've ever hit a punter, which is something I would never dream of doing. My job is to put the wrestlers over, not to get involved in punch-ups. But anyway, I hit him. I was then dragged off by one of the uh, attendants and taken out of the way. He said, we understand why you did that, you did the right thing. But we'll come down with you to the... Uh, car park when you leave just to make sure he's not hanging around and my only regret about doing that was that I didn't get a chance to land a, a decent blow a second blow and, which would have been a bit better I'm not a big guy but uh, I've never been even tempted to do anything like that but I absolutely lost my rag and I never managed to use that dinner jacket again not the best advert for mud wrestling it didn't happen again after that to my knowledge certainly not with John anyway Talking about not necessarily just confrontations with punters, have you had any other experiences or seen any other experiences over the years of punters either being confrontational or difficult in some way? I've seen punters run up to the ring and pull the ropes and occasionally try and get in. The only real confrontational thing I saw was on a show at the Sapphire Gardens in Cardiff where the venue where subsequently after a heavy snowstorm the roof caved in. It was, I believe, a Paul Lincoln show, although I wouldn't be absolutely sure on that. 
Uh, it was a tag match. It involved Dave Fit Finlay and various others. And he aggravated the crowd to such an extent that they were running up, jumping in the ring. And at one point, there were about 30 of them in the ring. They were getting in one side and the rest were throwing them out the other. Uh, and it was Mal Mason's ring, so it probably wasn't a Paul Lincoln show. But Mal was stood beside me and he said, that's my ring and that won't take that weight. It can't take 30 people. But uh, it didn't collapse, fortunately. And we also had something similar at a show in Fourth Call when one of the wrestlers finished up throwing out two or three of the punches from the ring. But also we had mentioned Stu Nat earlier on and I think Stu has been known if punters try and get into the ring to remove them forcibly from the venue. Well Stu again was a lovely bloke or is a lovely bloke but could be a little hot-headed at times perhaps. Wrestling of course is a profession which does involve a lot of travel. And over the years, you must have shared a car with absolutely hundreds of different people of all sorts of backgrounds. Who, for you, kind of stands out as some of the best people to have travelled with over the years? And on the other side of the coin, maybe who were some of the people you wouldn't quite like to share a car with any time in the future? I never really had a problem with anyone. Uh, one of the best guys I travelled with was Terry Rudge. Oh, okay. Very well known in a few years ago. He was so interesting. He'd been there, done that, got the t-shirt, and he was happy to talk about it, but he wouldn't push the fact he'd done it, you know. Uh -huh. You had to nudge him forward a little bit. Another one that mentioned earlier on, this will probably surprise a lot of people, was Mad Eli. Uh -huh. He was probably one of the best to travel with. As regards the worst to travel with, I didn't have any serious problem with anyone. One of the more interesting people I travelled with was a guy called John Harvey. Oh yeah, the fire eater. The fire eater and children's entertainer. And he couldn't stand children. But I drove him back from a show in the Midlands somewhere. I'd emceed, he'd wrestled. And the start of his performance was fire eating in the ring, as has been mentioned. But just after we'd passed the services, he said, I desperately need a pee. I thought, right, he picked the wrong time. Anyway, I pulled off at the next services, at the next roundabout, I should say, next exit, pulled onto the side of the road. Behind me pulls in a police car. I thought, oh shit, I haven't done anything wrong here. I'm not drunk, I'm perfectly sober, I'm not anything to drink or anything. Copper gets out of the car, comes up to me and says, excuse me, sir. Uh, you pulled off of there rather sharply. I said, yes, one of my passengers is in desperate need of a leak, a pee, a toilet, whatever you choose to call it. He said, can we breathalyze you? I said, absolutely no problem at all. He breathalyzed me, it was completely clear because I won't drink and drive. And he said, right, your passenger better go over the hedge over there. I said, he's already gone. <laughs> Uh, anyway, John returned and that's the end of the story, but he did say that it was a good job they didn't breathalyze him because apparently the fluid they use for fire eating is alcoholic. Yeah, of course it would be, wouldn't it? But really, as regards people to travel with, I take people as I find them. I've never had a problem with anyone and hopefully they haven't had a problem with me. Well, in that case, if you've not got any serious grievances about anyone you've travelled with, then I've, I feel like I've failed, frankly. <laughs> 
Well, I try and be nice to most people, everybody really. I'm not saying I always succeed, but I try not to speak too badly of anyone. The only one that I would speak badly of, I've already mentioned, is certain Mr. Conway. Mm. Other people have stitched me up over the years, but I've always uh, had a reasonable relationship with them, and uh, I would prefer it to stay that way, really. Well, I mean, it's fair to say that I've had a few adventures travelling in wrestling, some with you and some with other people. Can you think of any particularly memorable or perhaps harrowing travel stories over the years? I think probably the most harrowing one was the trip in the Force 8 Gale to the island. Stornoway, yeah. I think that's probably the only really bad one. I've been very fortunate. I did travel for one journey with Alan Kilby, whose driving was absolutely notorious. Uh, and many people wouldn't travel with him at all. I knew the stories, but I've always taken people as I find them. But I can understand the stories because uh, he was going through gaps that weren't there. <laughs> I got to the venue with no problem, but it was a little bit nerve-wracking. A friend of mine, I'm still in touch with him to this day, actually, not massively regularly, but I don't know if you remember him at all. A guy from Swansea called Mike Thomas. I remember Mike, yes, he's a very nice guy. I haven't heard anything of him for a very long time. No, he's been, he's been out of the business for a long time now. Yeah. He joined the army. But I remember particularly his driving. When we used to do the shows at Melksham Assembly Hall, he would be driving about, and Melksham, as you know, not a, a massive place, not a dual carriageway, not anything like that. And he would absolutely zoom round Melksham Town Centre at about 95 miles oh. an hour. Just... <laughs> And, yeah, I always thought it was funny. Uh, as I say, he joined the army, and he was driving tanks around... Well, he was driving tanks and tank transporters. You know, these massive things. For, and I've just got visions of him crushing everything in sight. Well, that's the thing, that if you run into anything, you just go over the top of it. If you're well, yeah. something like that. No, I was never uh, in that type of situation, thank goodness. Going back to wrestling now, I'd like to just get your opinions on some of the specific wrestlers that you've worked with over the years. And a good place to start with that seems to be with another listener question. And this one is from Paul Dougie Douglas, who asks, can you share any experiences you've had working with Kendo Nagasaki over the years? I haven't worked with Kendo a great deal. I think the first time was probably at Western Supermare. He didn't know me, although I'd been seen him in work many times, and obviously I didn't know him other than in the ring. We did share a dressing room, along with most of the rest of the bill, and whilst I was in the dressing room, he wouldn't take the mask off, which is fair enough, I would accept that, I didn't take offence. Eventually, after I'd worked with him several times, he would take the mask off in my presence, but he was never a man that would talk to anybody, or talk to me anyway, no, he had no reason to do so. He was never unpleasant, he was never pleasant or unpleasant, he was neutral. The last time I saw him was just after he published his book, he'd finished wrestling, uh -huh. it was just after he published his book, which is called, and which I would recommend very highly incidentally, 
Kendo Nagasaki and the Man Behind the Mask. Uh -huh. It's by Peter Thornley, which is actually Kendo. Yeah. And he refers to Kendo throughout the book in the third person. It's a very, very interesting book. It's not one that praises Kendo to the skies and says, I'm wonderful, I, I was never awful, anything like that. Uh -huh. He tells it as it is. It's also a charity book in that the receipts go towards the fund for Lee Rigby, who um, was knifed, and he's hoping to raise, I believe, a million pounds, whether he will do that. But the book I would recommend highly has been very entertaining, along with a couple of others. If you're into American wrestling, the book that I particularly found interesting, I'm not greatly into American, was by Brett the Hitman Hart, and it's called My Real Life in the Cartoon World of Wrestling. Uh -huh. Very interesting. And another one that I found particularly interesting, again, I would recommend it highly, is called have a good week until next week. And it's by John Lister, who is a professional journalist, written for The Guardian and various other papers, but more importantly to us, is a great wrestling fan. Uh -huh. He's written this book, which is a series of essays, basically, on wrestlers from the world of sport, all based on interviews with them, and very, very interesting such things as George Kidd, who trained George Kidd, the great lightweight, that's in there, something I've never found elsewhere. Uh -huh. And if you wish to go back and can get a copy, Desno Joe Cornelius's book, Thumbs Up, is also very entertaining. But as regards Kendo himself, I always found him all right. When he'd retired from the ring, he did attend several wrestling shows, selling his book and signing it. With some difficulty, I did manage to get him to sign, and he tells me that it's unique, both as Peter Thornley and as Kendo Nagasaki. Normally, he would simply sign as Kendo, but he was kind enough to sign mine as Peter Thornley as well. Going back a little bit to the books that uh, we were just talking about there, you mentioned John Lister's book with the title of Have a Good Week Till, Till Next, Next Week. week. Which, of course, was the famous line of Kent Walton. Kent Walton, of course. Did you ever come into contact with Kent Walton at all? Only time I ever came into Kent Walton, I uh, came into contact with Kent Walton. Sorry, very bad no, let, choice let, let, of let's, words, let's rephrase that. Let's yeah. tell that story, I'll put it in with the ring rest. No, no, definitely not. Um, the only time I ever came into contact with Kent Walton was probably at Wembley Town Hall, a couple of the other live TV shows I used to go to on a Saturday afternoon before I went to the Met in the Edgeware Road on Saturday night uh -huh. and got his autograph. He was always pleasant enough. I believe, having read a couple of articles on him later, that he was a failed West End actor who had appeared in the West End in the mid-1940s. Oh, okay. uh, he did also attend a couple of the reunions, I believe, at some yeah, reunions. Yeah, a couple of the early ones, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, but he, he was always very pleasant, very efficient, and I thought personally a good commentator. Talking about that a little bit, and talking about the ITV wrestling, were you around working for Brian Dixon at the time when he got in on the TV contract? I was. I never worked on TV. I actually 
attended in the audience the first show, I believe it's the first show that he did for ITV, which was from the London Hippodrome. Oh, yeah. Which, yeah. Um, I know Kendo was involved. Uh -huh. The London Hippodrome at that time, I think it was known then as the Talk of the Town, was owned by a guy called Peter Stringfellow, uh -huh. who was a, a character and a half in himself and a very well-known celebrity. Yeah. He was there on the occasion of the show. I caught him for his autograph. He was very pleasant to me. And I said, and I'd love to know more about the theatre as a theatre, which it was. He said, would you like to have a look round? He showed me round personally. But at that point, I'd never worked on TV other than for S4C as a timekeeper and a couple of local news programmes, that uh, news items that I was involved in some years ago. Mm -hmm. Before we go on to some of the other names that I want to ask you about, is there anybody that you've worked with over the years that you feel is underrated and isn't really talked about as much as perhaps they deserve to be? Uh, one that springs to mind, I know he's fairly well known, is James Mason. Uh -huh. James is a very good worker in my view, probably doesn't get the credit he deserves earlier days there were people like Cliff Beaumont, who I mentioned earlier on, who I thought was extremely underrated. More recent days, I suppose as an entertainer, you're talking to people like Bob Barrett. As a wrestler, I don't think Johnny Kidd gets the credit he deserves. There are others, most of them working perhaps for the smaller promotions, and nowadays there are so many regional promotions and uh -huh. promoters that just won two or three shows, yeah. but a uh, guy that has now gone on to much bigger things, I worked with him quite a lot of shows, including on the Butlin shows, quite a lot in Scotland, then known as Drew Galloway, now known as Drew McIntyre, uh -huh. but he is not a guy that has forgotten his roots. No. I went to a show that he was wrestling on top of the bill a couple of years ago, I thought, well, he won't know me, no reason why he should, I bought my ticket, went in. He was doing photos in the ring before the show at quite a considerable extra charge put on by the promoters, mm -hmm. along with a guy called Jay Lethal, who I understand is quite well known in America. I don't know much about the Americans, but as soon as he saw me, he beckoned me up into the ring straight away, no charge, introduced me to Jay Lethal, and photographed with the two of them straight away. Now, there's no reason why he should even remember me. I thought, that is a guy remembering his roots. Uh -huh. And also, uh, Steve Regal is very similar. As regards guys that don't get the credit they deserve, there's quite a lot of them around, I think. Talking about Drew there, I met up with him about this time last year, backstage at a WWE show in Birmingham. Yeah. It was the first time I'd seen him, actually, since he first went over to the States in 2007. I know in the meantime he'd been back here for a year or two, but I'd not managed to meet up with him at that time because I was very, very far removed from everything that was going on. And we'd also moved away from Scotland at that time. Yeah, talking to him then and talking to him since online and stuff like that, we've, we've been in sort of semi-regular contact for all of that time. But 
he really, really struck me as someone, as you say, that's never forgotten his roots and someone who, I mean, we all change as people over the years, but someone who's never really changed from that same person he was when he first went over there in 2007, you know. Um, He's got no big ego, no, no big head, nothing um, like that. No, he came across as very level-headed and basically just the same person he was before, you know, which is really, really refreshing to see and it sort of gives you a, a bit of a faith back in humanity. Um, yeah, I agree with you entirely. But yeah, I can't speak highly enough of Drew. He has always been very, very good to me. And a very um, good wrestler as well. Yeah, absolutely. And someone who deserves every bit of success that he's had. Yeah. Another one that just springs to mind, he's not that well known, he's well known in Scotland, and I've worked for him quite a bit, so maybe I'm slightly biased. That's a guy called Mike Musso, uh -huh. who has had trials, I believe, for the WWE. He runs a promotion called W3L, Worldwide Wrestling League, and he puts on a good show. I've worked for him, as I say, on several occasions, so maybe I'm biased, but as a wrestler, I think he's very capable. Uh -huh. He looks the part. And he works well with the crowd as well, which is part of the job as well. Yeah. So maybe he's another one that's underrated. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I haven't seen Mike's wrestling in years now, but he always did a very, very good job for me. He was very reliable and, you know, he was very good with the crowd, as you mentioned. And I had some really, really good, enjoyable times with Mike. Yeah, did so. And I've reconnected with him quite recently, actually. Well, the last shows I emceed, I hope they won't be the last ones, but the last ones I emceed were in Scotland for him just after Christmas. As I say, perhaps I'm biased, but I do think that uh, he's got it there. Uh -huh. And as you say, he's a, a very nice guy as well, but, which is not part of the job, I suppose, but it's superb public relations, and you can't buy public relations. Moving on a little bit now to just some general opinions on some people that you worked with over the years. Um, the first one of them is Danny Boy Collins. Always found Danny very fair, very pleasant, good worker, never any problems when I've worked with him, uh -huh. and a nice guy. Um, what about his brother, Pete Collins? Basically the same applies, I think. Supposedly they don't get on, but whether that is genuine or whether that is a, uh, what should we say, a, a storyline maybe, I don't know. Pete is a very good trainer. Danny was trained initially by a guy in Gloucester called Roy Harley, who himself was, by his own accounts, not a particularly good wrestler, but a capable MC and, and a good trainer. I think Pete's actually a good example of someone who's maybe a little bit underrated. Yeah, I would um, agree. Not by necessarily people within the job, but I think the problem Pete sort of suffers with in terms of his career being mentioned is he probably did his best work after the TV run had, yes. had already ended. Yeah, I would agree. He did make some appearances on TV, but I think he actually sort of really came into his prime in that run mm. that he had, particularly with Danny teaming and the feud that they had. Yeah, I think at one time he was also overshadowed by Danny. Yeah, I think that's an unfair comparison people make as well because yeah. I think each of them have got 
their own individual strengths. I mean, yeah, I, different I, styles. I think a lot of people would argue that Danny was maybe the better in-ring wrestler of the two, but I think Pete does get overlooked a bit as you know he is a, a, a fantastic villain. Mm. He was a very very capable wrestler. Yeah, I know he does still do the odd job now and again. He works occasionally. Yeah, I think he, he does more training than wrestling nowadays, and he's a good trainer. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's certainly got an absolute wealth of experience to yeah. pass on to people. But yeah, I think Pete is maybe a little bit underrated in that respect. Moving on from there, what about Marty Jones? Very good trainer. I've never had any problems with him. I know a lot of people have, but a lot of people consider him arrogant. Uh-huh. But I personally have never found that. He's always been alright with me. And, of course, one of Marty Jones's great rivals over the years, Rollable Rocker. I've worked with Mark quite a bit. I always found him very fair. I got a severe ticking off from him on one occasion when he was doing a spiel at the end of his bout. I spoke over him, which was a bad mistake. He gave me, to put it crudely, a right bollocking in the dressing room afterwards. He was on the same venue the following week and everything was fine. Uh -huh. I'd made a big mistake. I was told off for it, and so I should have been. But I've always found him fair, and as I mentioned earlier on, when he was in the dressing room after I'd, very childishly, I suppose, but very satisfyingly, had my nemesis's opponent thrown at me right through the bout, he was one of the people that immediately came to my defence and uh -huh. said, you don't shit in your own backyard, Pete. What about Dynamite Kid? worked with him a few times, particularly when uh, he was basically knackered. And when he came back and when he toured with Zorig, basically he wasn't fit to wrestle. Uh -huh. But uh, once again, I had no personal problems with him at all. He, he was civil enough to me. You touched on him a little while ago. What about Steve Regal? He went to the States quite a while ago now. But when he came back, probably eight or nine years ago, he was on one of the WWE shows at Bournemouth, which I went to, and I was hanging around trying to get the old autograph very unsuccessfully. And he happened to walk in and immediately he came across, and this made an enormous impression on me. Hello, John, how are you? Nice to see you again. I thought, well, A, why he remembered my name? Hopefully not because I'm a problem. And even if you remember the name, why did you take the trouble to come across? Yeah. I thought, that means a lot, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice guy, good worker, good showman. Yeah, I mean, as we said before, once seen, never forgotten. However hard you try, yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> did you work with Vic Faulkner at all? My story on Vic is, my father died in 1963. Vic probably was 16, 17 at that point. I went to a wrestling show at the Winter Gardens in Weston, as I used to go regularly. Vic was on the bill, and I was as miserable as sin. I'm always miserable, all sort of, anyway, but I was even more miserable. And I suppose I was having a moan and generally pleading my case as being hard done by, which I wasn't. But Vic came up and was chatting to me really nicely, and I thought, for a guy of his age particularly, he was so mature and very, very good wrestler in my view. I'm yeah. sorry to hear of his death reasonably recently. His brother Bert was a nice guy as well. What about Mick McMichael? 
I went to a wrestling show in Vienna some years ago. Mick was the referee, for some reason, in a kilt. Yeah. And he saw me waiting once again for autographs at the what was basically the stage door. He came across, started chatting, remembered my name, and said, come on in with me. And I said, well, I've already got a ticket, but thank you very much. And I thought, once again, people remembering your name yeah. makes a big difference, I think. What about Johnny Saint? You've probably worked with Johnny Saint quite a bit over the yeah. years. Yeah. First time I saw Johnny Saint was, I believe, in Pill Hall, which was a typical sort of hall you used to see on the 1940s films, full of smoke. It was in the Dockland area of Cardiff. And I'm pretty sure John was on that show. It must have been his very early days. He was good then. And also on some of the bills there were a guy that probably most people once again won't remember. He was Black Quango, Johnny Quango's brother. And it was a guy called Black Butcher Johnson. Yeah. Who was a big, big name at one time. Another one of Johnny's brothers, incidentally, was Sir Leggy, who used to play in the comedy show band Nuts and Bolts. And I believe before then in St. Millward's Nitwits. Nitwits, yeah. But Johnny Saint, yeah, lovely guy, great wrestler. Pleased to see that he's still in the business now as a trainer for WWE. Mm -hmm. He used to have a shop in Blackpool, which I occasionally went into near the Pledger Beach. And he wasn't ashamed to come up and start chatting to you sort of thing, you know. We talked about Johnny Saint. What about Steve Gray? Fine wrestler, type of wrestler I like to watch, skilled wrestler. Uh -huh. Once again, nice guy. Not everybody's a nice guy, but all the ones you've mentioned are. And most entertaining contest I used to see and watch, although he probably didn't enjoy them, was blindfold contest usually <laughs> against uh, Mel Saunders. Mel Saunders, yeah. It was different and amusing. It wasn't really wrestling, but it was always amusing and entertaining. I think my favourite matches of Steve Gray have been the ones with Zoltan Boschek. Oh, yeah, Zolly, yeah. Once again, a fine wrestler. I didn't know him. I saw him work quite a lot, but that would be good because it was two skilled wrestlers together. And Johnny Kidd and Steve Gray was another very good one. Yeah, absolutely. The thing I found notable with the uh, Gray and Bolshevik matches was they had a number of TV matches together, and they were all very, very different from each other, but mm. all absolutely fantastic bouts, yeah. you know, in their own right. You had very technical, very skillful wrestling bouts. And then you had some absolutely fantastic Blue Eye and Villain yeah. wrestling bouts. And they were all absolutely fantastic. Just take, a great pairing. It takes two good skilled men to put on a different contest every time. Yeah. That's the problem with some shows that you used to see, where you'd see the two people on, and you'd see the same bout you saw the previous night somewhere else. Yeah. All right, that's understandable, but... If you travelled much, it would get a bit repetitive. Yeah, and would also serve to expose things. Yeah, that's very true as well, yeah. Of course, you know, back in those days, pre-internet, pre-results being leaked yeah. everywhere, you could get away with that, because there weren't all that many people that would travel from, yeah, from town to town, would there? You see a few around, but people like myself and the late Dave Franklin, people like that. Uh -huh. And of course the uh, aforementioned Mad Eli. Maddy like travelled, but he didn't travel that much because he had no transport. He ran coach trips to various places. But, yeah. uh, um, 
What memories have you got of Judo Johnny Brown? Oh, lovely guy. John was a very, very, I believe he's still alive. Well, he yes, he quite is. elderly now. He had to wrestle in a mask in his later years because he looked his age. But he didn't wrestle. He was a lovely guy, very capable wrestler, Judo John Brown. Uh -huh. I know on one occasion he took me to his house and he got a lovely house with a big garden and a lovely wife and a nice dog. I know that up to not that long ago he was still refereeing. Yeah, he was the referee on these shows in Wales for Dave Reese. It was always a, a, an experience, especially being in the car with him and listening to him tell those incredible stories. He'd been there, done that and got the t-shirts, what it was like. Yeah, and I remember going to the Ellesmere Port reunion and he was up at the bar and was talking to Tracy, my wife, who had gone up to the bar to get some drinks. And she came back and she said, there's this guy that's just started talking to me. He, he was telling me about like a time where he fell asleep in the ring. And, um, <laughs> and they, I've not heard that one. They folded up the ring, like they, they took the canvas off, they folded it all up with him inside it and put it away in the van. And I said, okay. And like she pointed over to the bar and she said, it's that guy over there. And I said, ah, oh, right, okay, I, yeah, I can quite believe that, actually. Probably <laughs> true. Yeah. <laughs> wonder who the promoter was. Oh, who knows, but he was he was absolutely fantastic. Oh, um, absolutely great guy. I'd as I say, a good wrestler, too. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to see him again. Mm, I would. I actually met him when he was doing some coaching at Steve Logan's place in Birmingham. First met him when my ex started wrestling and she came up here to Birmingham as I said training and that's how I met John. And that would have been eighty three. What about Jeff Kay? Jeff Kay I have seen him wrestle but rarely, but he was on the shaky tours of Scotland and he struck me as being a very very nice guy and a very very capable referee. Uh -huh. I always got on very very well with you. Of the referees you know in more modern times there's three that stick in my mind. Jeff, a guy that worked a lot for Oreg called Cyril Roberts, Chico. Mm -hmm. The story I remember about him he was a regular referee at Western Supermare for a season and of course he got all the stick from the crowd and he wanted to come. He genuinely wanted to come to the ring on the last show with a white stick and a dog. Oregon fortunately wouldn't have let him. Uh, the other guy was uh, Arthur Donovan. Known to a lot, particularly to Skull Murphy, is JD because of supposed resemblance to Jimmy Durante, uh -huh. the American comedian. Arthur, nice guy, shared a room with him quite a lot on tour and first thing you could do if you went into the hotel room it would be straight to the kettle on with the kettle he'd have a cup of tea after you had a cup of tea yeah he was a nice guy jeff as i say lovely guy apparently a good trainer in his day i'm told a good wrestler although i only, might have only seen him once that's probably on television <laughs> but i believe he's no longer with us no he passed away uh think maybe two or three years ago now it might be slightly longer than that yeah talking of referees what about frank casey that case nice night case i always got on well with him he used to wrestle as the mighty atom uh -huh. amongst other things 
would come in with a revolving red light on its head. Good comedian, shall we say. Uh -huh. I had a lovely dog and a nice wife. I don't know if he's still around or not. I've not heard anything of him for a long time. Were you ever around some of the, uh, the mischief he would get up to? I heard many stories, but I was never involved in any of them. Or never the victim. The next one we've touched on a little bit already. Johnny Kidd. Excellent wrestler. Even now, although he's been around a few years. Mm -hmm. Excellent wrestler, still capable of doing the job. Looks amazingly young. Uh -huh. Always has done. Uh -huh. And once again, a lovely guy. I travelled with him quite a bit and always found him extremely good company. Mm -hmm. And a very entertaining wrestler. Very capable technical wrestler, but also a good showman. Yeah. A combination you don't get all that often. And uh, as you've already said, you know, a great guy. Uh, genuinely one of the nicest people I've encountered in wrestling. Definitely, yes. Going on from John, his, of course, long time rival over the years, and a man that I know that you've travelled with quite a bit, Bob Barrett, Blondie Barrett. I think the best summing up is a character, in the nicest possible way. He's not a youngster by his own admission, but he's still very capable, good showman, good villain, good comedian under one or two of his other names, a tag partner for quite a while to Kendo Nagasaki. Uh -huh. I'm not going to say whether that's a good thing or a bad thing for either of them, but still regularly works, as does Johnny Kidd, who we mentioned earlier on. And, as you say, I've travelled with him quite a lot. He lives in Sheffield. He's got a lovely wife, Wendy. I have, on more than one occasion, driven up to Sheffield, stayed overnight locally, often with him and his wife, and then driven on up to Scotland to work for W3L. First time I did it, I had an assortment of CDs and things in the car, because I thought it was going to be a long journey, it was going to be boring. We didn't put any of them on, because we spent the entire journey chatting. As you've gathered by now, I can chat till the cows come home. <laughs> and shares an interest in circus, used to work on the fairgrounds, I believe on Dodgems, and we've talked about that. But you can have a conversation with Bob on anything. Uh -huh. And it will always be interesting. Always found him very genuine, very pleasant, good company, and a very capable entertainer. What about Dave Taylor? I worked with Dave a bit. I worked more for his father than for him, actually, with Eric Taylor. I did some work for him as an MC when he was uh, promoting with Les Kellett. Uh -huh. And both Dave and Steve, I found capable wrestlers, yeah. a bit of a practical joker, but not in a nasty way, uh -huh. and good, steady workers. You mentioned him a little bit in terms of the promoting. What about Les Kellett? I worked for Les and Eric Taylor. Les had a shocking reputation as being a really hard and not very pleasant man. I never had any problems with him. Most of my dealings were with Eric, who was an absolute gentleman. Les, obviously being co-promoter, was always there and usually on the bill. I never fell out with him, I never had problems. I didn't know him particularly well. Uh -huh. I think his problem was that fame came to him 
probably a little bit too late in life on television when he became more of a comedian. Yeah. Because originally I understand he was a hard man and genuinely hard man, you know. But I haven't got anything wrong to say about Les. I've heard it said in the past, I mean, he was renowned for his comedy, obviously, yeah. as well as being this incredible yeah. hard man. It's I think the hard man was more out of the ring than in it. Right. I've heard it said before that a lot of that comedy stuff was maybe taken from Bernard Murray. I can remember Bernard. I never worked with him, obviously, because uh, he was in my early days. Right. I always remember him as being a little bald man. Yeah. But I can't remember a great deal about the comedy side of things. His appearance, not being rude to him, his appearance made him look a bit uh, strange. Uh-huh. But uh, other than having seen him work, I can't say much about him, to be honest. I never saw him wrestle, but I did see him referee a few matches on TV. One in particular with Les Kelly. And he was the perfect foil as the referee, much like Max Ward would be. Oh, God, yeah. Let's talk about Max Ward, because I know, you know, there's... Um, well, Max Ward, I, I've actually seen Max Ward wrestle. I was talking earlier on about uh, Paul Lincoln shows at the Met in the Edgeware Road. Uh, I saw there Max Ward, who was billed as a Midlands area champion. I believe he originally came from Birmingham, but he was billed anyway as Midlands area champion. Uh -huh. Wrestle Dr. Death. And this Dr. Death was Paul Lincoln. Yeah. Paul Lincoln, probably best known as being the man who ran the Two Eyes coffee bar in Soho uh -huh. and through that discovered quite a number of the top rock and roll artists, genuinely discovered them there. Yeah. I believe Tommy Steele was one. He started off the bout, Max, who I think was probably past his prime then, and this was probably 61, by giving a bunch of flowers to Dr. Death. Well, that probably wasn't the best way to start the bout, but the only other time I saw him wrestle if you can call it that, was a custard pie match against Mad Eli on one of Eli's shows. Yes. Um, which was a farce, obviously. It finished up with a pair of them covered in custard. Uh -huh. a complete farce. But it did take Max, this doesn't show him in a very good light, we took Max to a show in, I think, the Oval as a passenger. This was Jenny and myself. And... Halfway down, he said, can we stop? He said, fair enough. He said, there's a phone box over there. We thought, oh, you want to make a phone call? Went across to the phone box. Max, I hurry to add. Urinated in the phone box. Uh, and then came back to the car and carried on. And I think this shows that he was something of a crude man. Mm. His wife was absolutely gorgeous and lovely, really, really nice lady. We often wondered how she got mixed up with him. I did go to its funeral. Unfortunately, I was given the wrong time and I arrived just as it was finishing. Uh -huh. But there weren't a lot of wrestlers there, as you perhaps would expect. I, once again, never crossed swords with him. I tried to avoid getting problems with people. Uh -huh. But he was an adequate referee, I think, who tended to try and make the light shine on him rather than the wrestlers. Mm -hmm. My feeling has always been a referee's job is to put the wrestlers over as is an MC's job. Yeah. His job is to put the wrestlers over, not himself. And I think he tended to be a little bit putting himself over. The one that I always thought really was in that mould of 
making themselves the show rather than the wrestling was Brian Crabtree. Yeah, the word that springs to mind is not complimentary, so I won't use it. But when Brian Dixon started sharing the Colston Hall with the Crabtrees, Brian asked me if I would hand out his leaflets at the previous Crabtree show for advertising his show at the next show at that venue. I realise now it was a silly thing to do, but I didn't realise it at the time. I did so. I did it outside the hall. I didn't do it in the hall. <laughs> I did it before the show and after the show outside. Crabtree wanted to get me banned from the hall immediately. He spoke to the hall manager. The hall manager, and I quote, told him, don't be silly. He's been coming here for years. He's never caused any problem. I never fell out with him other than that on occasion, but I do think, as you say, that he felt that he was the star of the show. Yeah. As opposed to his brother, who was quite reasonable, I always thought. And surely, well, surely was all right. Surely believed his own publicity, I think. In fairness to him, I mean, you know, he, he was a, a, a genuine, massive household name at one point. Oh, very um, much so. I mean, when I first saw him at the Met in the Edgeware Road in 61, he was a reasonably capable wrestler then. Uh -huh. I just think that he was pushed, once he became well-known, he was pushed to continue a lot longer than perhaps he should have done. Yeah, I would agree with Both that. Both from a health point of view and from an ability point of view. Well, especially as around 1988, towards the end of the TV run, he was pushed on TV despite having had a stroke. Yes, and, exactly. Which was very, very visible. Yeah. Um, you know, one side of his face was very noticeably yes. drooping. Yeah. Which obviously, you know, isn't a great thing. He was put on mainly in tag matches after that, wasn't he, with uh -huh. Ian McGregor as one of his partners. Ian, very underrated wrestler, I should have mentioned earlier on. Now a good promoter, mainly in the Manchester area. Not promoting every week, just running shows autumn and spring. Very, very successfully. I know for a fact that he's got venues booked up that have asked him to come back up to five years ahead. Uh, and he's selling out big, big venues, uh -huh. same venues each year. Puts on a good show, I've seen a couple of them, would not work for him. It must be doing the right things because people want him back each year. Uh -huh. Yeah, surely, well as you say, I think he was pushed into continuing too long. Yeah. What about Mal Sanders? Again, the word character springs to mind. Didn't like newcomers and tended to treat them a bit harshly, but I've worked with him quite a bit. He's always been pleasant to me. He knows I've got an interest in Speedway. He always asks me who the current world champion is, and he usually knows, because I believe he used to go to Wimbledon Speedway. I can work at any style, basically. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier on, I had some wonderful uh, blindfold matches, which mm -hmm. takes quite a bit of skill, I think. But again, a, a decent technical wrestler. I think he was one of those guys, wasn't he, that was very versatile in that way. We talked earlier on about John Kenny, and one of the things that always made him stand out was his versatility. And I think, yeah, I think, I think Mel Sanders was very much the same, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah. Going back to some of the more comedic wrestlers, did you work with Kevin Keneally? I knew him reasonably well. I was invited along with Jenny to the wedding of, I think it was Sandy Scott 
and Busty Keegan, which was, I can't remember where it was now, but anyway, Kevin was there and he made an after-dinner speech, which was absolutely hilarious. Yeah, I can imagine. I always thought that as a comedian, he was very, very good in the ring. Uh, as a wrestler, he was capable enough. It's always stuck in my mind because everybody at that wedding, more or less after the reception, everybody disappeared. There was a wrestling show somewhere locally and I think three quarters of the audience went to that straight away. <laughs> or three quarters of the attendees, I should say. What about Cat Weasel? When I ever saw him work, I didn't know him at all. Okay. But good entertainer from what I saw in the ring. And responsible, incidentally, for the Southern Reunion starting. Yes, that's because absolutely right. I yeah. gather that the wrestlers who attended his funeral said, well, we only ever meet up at funerals. Uh-huh. Let's start a reunion. And it sprung developed from there. What about Jim Brakes? Nice man. I always thought he'd make a wonderful pantomime, ugly sister or dame. <laughs> On tour for Speedway, my ex and I went into his pub in Batley, which I think was called Seconds Out. Yeah. There was nothing to do with wrestling around there, but we got talking to the locals, and they said, oh, we love Jim, he's a great landlord, but we always go along when he's wrestling and we boo him, because Jim was mainly a heel. Yeah. He was in my view, a very nice man, a good entertainer, and if he was working with somebody, he would give to them, he wouldn't hog the match. I'm thinking particularly of some of the bouts he had with Peter Bainbridge, who's now a promoter in inverted commas. Uh, I should say no more about that. Yeah, he was a good worker, and once again a nice guy, and my dealings with him. What about Ken Joyce? I only ever saw him work. I didn't know oh. him very well. I saw him at Wimbledon Palais when he ran Devereux Promotions from Mrs. Devereux, and that would have been probably 61. Very good tag partner to Eddie Capelli. Always when I saw him, capable wrestler. I can't vouch what sort of person he was, because other than to get an autograph, I never met him. But Bob Barrett would be the guy to tell you more about him, because yeah. Bob was trained by him, yeah. I believe. Uh -huh. And Johnny Kidd as well. Yeah, that in itself says how good Ken was as a trainer. Mm -hmm. A lot of the footage of Ken Joyce that's out there is very much from the tail end of his career. Mm. I mean, you saw him, presumably, back in his prime. I don't know about that, 61, I don't know whether that would have been his prime or not. But... How good was Ken Joyce? Um... He was good. He wasn't... A world beater, probably, but he was very, very capable. Mm -hmm. Along with Eddie Capelli, as I say. What about Pat Roach? He was a good worker on the way up. He became known as Bomber. Quite a good actor, I thought, personally. I think it went to his head a bit. At that period, he was known for never signing autographs yeah. and being quite abrupt about it. In earlier years, he had. I remember him working for a guy called Dominic Pye, who used to run three shows a week in the afternoons on the South Pier at Blackpool. And all sorts of interesting people turned up, but Pat Roach was one of the ones that turned up there. He was judo Pat Roach at that time. But as I say, on the way up, he was okay. Top. It went to his head a bit. He started going down again. 
and yeah, he was back to what he used to be. But it was very sad to see him turn up at one of the reunions. It was quite obvious that it was going to be his last public appearance, and it was very, very sad to see. Yeah. Because he really deteriorated with his health. Someone that you did touch upon earlier, Skull Murphy. Very hard man. Nasty sense of humour at one time when I was uh, timekeeping. He had a nasty habit and when he came into the ring of whipping the chair away from under you as you were sitting there. In more recent years, a lot nicer, a lot more mellow. Very good villain. His father was an excellent wrestler, Roy Ball Davis, a good villain. Mm -hmm. Had a thick West Country accent and when he became MCing it was a bit more difficult. But he was in good company because Peter Zakas had a thick Hungarian accent when he emceed and he was difficult to understand. But yeah, Skull, hard guy, but nice guy, more recently certainly anyway. Did you come across Steve Casey at all? Yep, son of Wild Angus Campbell. That's right. I did a couple of tours with him. Excellent worker, I thought. Yeah. Once again, nice guy. I was on a boat, I think we were somewhere around the Old Man of Hoy up in Scotland. That's a set of rocks, if you don't know, not an old gentleman. <laughs> uh, and I was taking a photograph, and Steve was on the deck of the boat and said, Oh, well, hang on a minute, I'll take one of you with the rock in the background, because if you've not got yourself on a photograph, people don't know you've been there. I thought, well, what a nice thought. He wasn't a man that you messed about with, but he knew his job and he did his job very, very well. I believe he's still alive, but his father, Wild Angus, was a character and a half. And once again, a good worker, a very good villain. And both of them, again, very well-travelled. Oh, very much so, yeah. What about John Quinn? I emceed a bit with John. My best story about John is my ex and I... We had a weekend away, we went to Liverpool Stadium, the only time I've ever been there, and we followed that, we were staying overnight somewhere that Dixon had booked us in, to the Rock Ferry Guest House, which is where a lot of the rest have stayed, and following day we went to Belper in Derbyshire, where Brian had a show. We got chatting to John there. But he was a nice guy, I thought his introduction when he first came over here, it was brilliant uh -huh. when he would praise the English up to the skies and then basically say it's all rubbish. Yeah. We saw him work quite a lot and we always got on very, very well with John. Sadly, I believe he's departed now. Yeah, a year or two ago. Yeah. And I think well, quite well respected as well. Yeah, absolutely. What about Dave Bond? Always found him all right. I thought he was a very good tag team with Johnny Kincaid, another nice guy, mm -hmm. but one you didn't mess with. Capable worker in the ring, I thought. Uh, Johnny Kincaid. Nice guy, good worker in the ring. Don't mess with him. Don't refer to his colour. Yes, I know somebody uh, did call him. It wasn't a walk or anything that derisive, but they did refer to his colour and they promptly got slapped. But they deserved it for what they did. Quite a hard man because he took over, he became a publican and took over pubs in I think Milton Keynes, 
that the brewers or the pub company were very wary about because they had a lot of trouble there. Uh -huh. Johnny sorted it out. Published a very interesting autobiography as well, which I believe yeah. has run to two volumes. Yeah, I've read his book actually. Very, very interesting. There's quite a lot of books published by wrestlers. A lot of them are fairly low profile. There's one by a guy called Jackie Bitterball Evans, who um, worked in the West Country. I can't remember the title of it, I'll try and find it. But that's very entertaining because he talks about small promotions in probably the 60s oh, okay. that he uh, worked on. I bought it at one of the reunions, he was there signing them. What about Jim Moser? Jim was a character and a half. I'd worked with him a few times and I've shared a room with him as well. He had a habit of going in, turning the television on and would then go to bed, go to sleep. If you turn the television off, probably in the middle of the night, he'd immediately wake up to give you a right uh, ticking off for turning it off. But yeah, I thought an underrated wrestler. Yeah, absolutely. And he looked the part as well. I mean. Sid Cooper. First time I saw Sid Cooper was at Wimbledon Palais, 61, under the name of Norman Cooper, which I believe was his real name from Queensbury, which I think is part of Bradford. Quite a good heel then, continued to be quite a good heel in my view, it was the guy that Dale Martins used to use as a tryout, to see if a newcomer could cope with him. Uh -huh. And he wouldn't treat them gently either. Yeah, good entertainer, good villain, bit of a comedian, cyanide Sid Cooper. What about Tibor Zakash? Lots of people will argue with me on this one. I always thought, good wrestler, a plodder. But that's probably because he was a good technical wrestler and I think a lot of people would say that he wasn't a plodder. If you knew he was on the bill, you knew you'd get good entertainment. But much along the lines of people like John Elijah as well. He probably wasn't as good as T-Board, but a good steady worker. I bumped into him in I think it's somewhere in Cornwall, when I'd just done the sales on one of the Haven Caravan parks, which reasonably recently. Uh, I was having a look around the town, and somebody walks up past me, turns around, comes back and said, you don't remember me, do you? I said, well, no disrespect, no, I don't. Name John Elijah mean anything to you? So immediately a twig, it was John, who probably had stopped wrestling some years before, <laughs> but had uh, spotted me. Whereas most people would probably have avoided me like the plague, John came up and started chatting, which I thought was very nice. What about Fuji Yamada? Yeah, I did see Justin Liger. I actually worked with him in probably Gloucester, but certainly I worked with him. He was very charming in the dressing room, and once again, he was happy to sign an autograph. He was also quite prepared to sign as Fuji Yamada. I thought, obviously at that point, he was quite a big name in both Japan and I believe America. And I thought he was a very entertaining and competent wrestler. And pleasant enough guy, you know. What about Barry Douglas? I worked with Barry Douglas towards the end of his career. Once again, I used to class him as a plodder, but I think I was very unfair. I think I underrated him considerably. Nice guy, 
pleasant man, good worker, I toured with him a bit, and although he wasn't a youngster then by any means, he could still do the job. Yeah. Sometimes with a mask on, sometimes without. That's right, he did the bull blitzer gimmick That's as it, well, yeah. didn't he? Mainly with a mask on, because yeah. he looked a bit more his age in those days. What about Richie Brooks? Although Richie came from my part of the world and he moved to Leeds, again, no problem with him. Uh, I thought he was a good worker. He had some very good contests with Danny Collins in the early days. Uh -huh. He just seemed to fade off of the scene fairly quickly. I don't know why, but pleasant enough guy. What about Dave Duran? Dave Duran, hard guy. The last I heard, he was a security guard, I think, in the Far East somewhere. One of the really nasty places to be. But, yeah, again, no problems with him personally. What about Rocky Moran? Rocky, I think I am seeing his second contest in this country. I always found him a nice guy, genuine, pretty capable wrestler. A little story about him. Roger Brown, who we mentioned earlier on, I think he would agree that he was married a couple of times, Roger. His second wife, Audrey, was, how can I put this politely, something of a slapper, shall we say. And apparently she offered herself to Rocky, and Roger told me this, she offered herself to Rocky when he stayed there overnight. He turned her down blank, which I don't think went down terribly well with her. Hmm. But I shouldn't tell that one, probably, especially as Roger's not around now, and Audrey probably still is somewhere. But, yeah, nice guy, um, capable enough wrestler. What about Banger Walsh? Oh, Tony. Wasted uh, as opponent, surely. Obviously became security man for Chubby Brown and subsequently developed a very big security company from that. Published his autobiography. I tried to get a copy in Edmonton Spa when I was postering up there. Couldn't get one anywhere. For some reason, years prior to that, he'd given me his phone number. I don't know why to this day. But anyway, I thought, well, I'll try this number, see if he knows if there's anywhere I can get the book. I went through to a secretary, I thought, well, I'll never get to him. I was put through to him, which amazed me, and he said, oh, are you coming up here again? I've got several of them in the garage, this autobiography. I said, well, yeah, I'm probably coming up. I've been asked to MC at the hall there, your old hunting brand. And when I got there, he turned up with a copy of the book for me, which he refused to take any money for and signed. Went round, had a chat with the wrestlers on the bill, and went home. He hadn't come to see the show at all. He basically had come to bring me the book. <laughs> so it was really nice. I've always had the feeling that he's a little bit deaf because of the way he speaks, but I may be wrong. Upset a lot of people when he did the expose in the, uh, I think the people, or one of the Sunday papers anyway. The autobiography's interesting. Personally, I've never had any problem with him at all, quite the reverse. And capable wrestler, but not used in the right way, in my view. What about Boston Blackie? Yeah, worked with him a few times. Once again, a man not to be messed with. Always treated me fairly. And 
of respect to disability, but he certainly was a hard man. I think he had his sometimes problems with the law, shall we say, outside of the uh, ring because of his temperament, but I can't vouch for that. The last time I saw him was at Oric Williams' funeral, and he was really nice as everybody was, particularly Oric's wife and his daughter. Yeah. His daughter now being, I don't know if she still does it, but she was a very well-known actress yeah. in Wales, Welsh language, one of the stars of a Welsh soap opera, which is still running, called Pabla O'Coom. They had a wrestling sequence on there, this will give you a laugh, which was filmed in Wales at a wrestling show, one which Auric put on. I didn't know it was being filmed until I got there. I was asked to MC the show in English. Pablo Coombe being a Welsh language show, Auric did the, the Welsh side of it. But I had to explain to the crowd, who were multilingual most of them, what was happening. All the cast, the principals of the cast, some of whom were quite well known outside of Wales. One of them I remember was Rachel Thomas, who starred in some films with Paul Robeson before the war. They were sat along the front row in the audience on stage, and I endeavoured to announce what was happening, and endeavoured to announce Pabla Ukum as near as I could get in Welsh. They all promptly dissolved into fits of laughter and gave me a round of applause. But Tara, Oric's daughter, was one of the stars of that for many years. And I saw her in pantomime at Landudna. She was actually very good. What about Brian Maxine? Always got on all right with him. Saw him once as a country and western singer, which he was actually very good at, something along the lines of Johnny Cash. I know some people didn't particularly like him and his syrup, if I can put it that way, <laughs> rhyming slang syrup of figs, work it out from that, was something of a standing joke, but capable enough wrestler, I think, and quite a good country and western singer in my view. And finally on these little opinions, Spinner McKenzie. I had my fallouts with Spinner. He could be very hot-tempered. I know he denies it, but on one occasion I firmly believe, and I was there, that he sacked everybody on the bill one night before the show, apart from Skull, and nobody sacked Skull. But he was then taken aside and told that we haven't got a show tonight. Why is that then? Because you've sacked all the wrestlers. Having said that, I know we had our fallout. Subsequent to that, he was at that time engaged to a cabaret singer called Michelle. And Spinner knew that I was very interested in cabaret and would love to see her sing live. So one night at the end of a tour, Justin Richards and myself, I'd been driving Justin, picked him up in Birmingham and drove him up to Scotland for these shows. Spinner said, I know you want to see Michelle sing. She's on tomorrow night at the old Butlins camp, which at that point had been taken over by somebody else, in air. If you'd like to stay up here and see her sing, we'll put you up for the night. And I said, well, I'd absolutely love to, you know, but obviously I'd be guided by what Justin wants because he's got to get back to Birmingham and I'm the transport. 
So uh, Justin said, yeah, that's no problem. We can stay up an extra day. We went to the camp. We saw Michelle sing, and she was very good, I have to say. But when we got up in the morning, after staying overnight, I was wary of doing it because I thought I'm going to be stitched up left, right and centre here. I wasn't. Breakfast was brought out to us. I thought, well, that's great for the two of us. And that was each huge breakfast. And after that time, I've not spoken to Spinner for quite a while. As far as I'm aware, we've always got on very well. Yeah, we did have our big fallouts, certainly. But I've got no grudge to bear. And as a wrestler, I thought he was capable. And as a promoter, along with Shaky, he was the honest one of the two, let's put it that way. Uh -huh. Although Shaky owes me quite a lot of money, I've got no problem with him and once again would love to know what's happened to him, so if he's still giving Her Majesty pleasure. Closing out this particular section with a couple more listener questions, which are from the aforementioned Spinner McKenzie. Oh dear, yeah, all right. Um, he probably wants anything to do with me after this one. <laughs> Which wrestlers that you worked with did you not like? I tried to get on with everybody. You got on better with some more than others. The only one that I would say I dislike him, but I would prefer not to see him is probably Scott Conway. And what wrestlers did not live up to your expectations? I never go to a show with expectations on anyone, so. I can't really say that anybody, but there were some wrestlers that I saw who were inadequate, not too many. I worked for a couple that were, none of the aforementioned today, but I did see a couple of girls who literally fell over each other in the ring on a small show that I believe was Shrewsbury, somewhere around that way. Mark Rowell again, would like to know what your favourite matches to have watched over the years? Oh, I'd hate somebody to ask me that. Very difficult to say because there's been so many. Probably the best one I emceed would have been Owen and Danny Collins. Owen was such a nice guy as well, but that's irrelevant really as to regards to the wrestling. He was absolutely charming. He came over here and did three matches one of which I emceed, another one of which I saw. The one I emceed was at the Pavilion at Bath. I think they were all for Orig Williams. The last one might have been Brian Dixon, but I think it was Orig. One at the Pavilion at Bath, one I believe in Cheltenham. I can't remember where the third one was, but he only did the three. And I was fortunate that I did the first one at Bath. But he was a lovely guy. But more important, really, was that he was a superb wrestler and a good showman. Uh -huh. He had his wife with him, who was also charming. And, of course, Danny was a very capable worker as well, so the two of them together was quite impressive. Yet another listener question. This one from someone that we both know reasonably well, Justin Richardson. Oh, yes, Justin. A.K.A. Justin Richards. Yeah. And he asks, in your opinion... Are the wrestlers of today inferior to those of yesteryear? I wouldn't say inferior, they're different. The wrestlers of earlier years that I'm aware of were more technical because that was what the people wanted then. Uh -huh. Nowadays, a lot of the wrestlers, I won't say all of them, a lot of them 
perhaps the wrong word to use, but ape the American style, mm -hmm. which is a different thing altogether. Uh, a lot of the Americans I've been lucky enough to work with are superb on the microphone, and when it comes to the actual wrestling, that's a different thing altogether. Doesn't apply to all of them. Owen was very much an exception. He was great on the microphone and great in the ring. But some, not all, some of the others were basically not to put too fine a point on it, crap when it came to the wrestling. Uh -huh. But great with the showmanship. Mm -hmm. So, difficult question to answer, really. This one is from Tony Cochran, who refereed for me quite a bit under the name Tony Nadette. I remember him, yeah. He asks, what are John's fondest career highlights, looking back? Virtually impossible to say. The travel was more of the interest than in the actual career. I don't know if I would call it a career even. I'd almost go to the word hobby. But possibly one of them would be again that emceeing that show with Owen Hart. Because I knew he was a big name, but I didn't expect it to be like that. Some of the shows I did with Earthquake, such a nice guy. But any specific highlight would be very difficult to think. Possibly the first time I travelled to Scotland for wrestling. This question is again from Spinner. If John could give one bit of advice to his younger self, what would it be? Don't do it. No, <laughs> that's not fair. Don't believe your own publicity. I don't think I've ever done that anyway. Not that I've had much publicity in any case. And remember that your job is to put the wrestlers over it, not to put yourself over it. I always like to think that I have always worked to that basis. Other than that, take it as it comes. Don't believe some of the things people tell you. Make sure you get paid. I've been pretty lucky. There are certain people that haven't paid me, even to this day, 20 years later in some cases. But try and do your best for everybody and try and treat everybody equally. Even if they shit on you, don't shit too hard on them back. Don't hold grudges. And our final listener question is from Bob Barrett, aged ten and a quarter, from Sheffield. He should be so lucky. He says, ask him about when he got ripped off and paid £6.99 for a bar of chocolate in Scotland. Quite true. Bob and I were doing a show just after Christmas. I can't remember the name of the town now, but... We got there fairly early, as I always like to try to do, and had a walk round, found a little sweet shop. We'd not eaten, so I like chocolate. I'm not fanatical. I like Orkney fudge more than I like chocolate. There were some bars on the counter in a box. I think, from memory, it was white chocolate caramel. Now, I like white chocolate, I like caramel, but I've never seen the two combined together. So I said to the guy, well, how much are they? And it was a normal size bar, you know, a pound type size bar. Uh -huh. It was Cadbury's, so I thought, well, it's got to be good. And he said six ninety nine. Well, when I got up off the floor in hysterics, I said to him, well, that's a bit expensive, why is that? He said they're Australian. The owner of the shop has been to Australia and he bought a couple of boxes back. And I was about to walk out and I thought, I'm never going to see this again. I've been to Australia, but I'm never going to see this again. If I go out now, I'm only going to think, well, I wonder what they taste like. It sounds terrific. So I bought a bar. 
alright, I probably was ripped off. But I went away happy because I now got the chance to find out what white chocolate and caramel taste like. And it tastes very nice, I have to say. Did it taste £6.99 a bar nice? Technically no, but probably actually for me, yes. Because I knew what it was like then. And if I ever go back to Australia, which nowadays is probably unlikely, although I've been there twice, I'd look for it. It's obviously even being Cadbury's, and it was genuine Australian because I looked at the label. Even being Cadbury's, and probably won't come to this country. Give him my congratulations on his 11th birthday, incidentally, please. <laughs> In closing, is there anything that you would like to say to... Firstly, anybody that you've known over the years, and secondly, anyone that's enjoyed your contributions to the wrestling business over the years. Not a lot, really. I'd like to thank the people that signed all the autographs for me over the years. Mm -hmm. I know it can be a pain at times. Uh, I have, heaven alone knows why, been asked for mine on occasions. I always try and sign, or if I can't sign, I will say, I'll sign for you as soon as I can, and I always try to do that. Thank you for all the nice people I've met, there's been a lot. I won't say anything about the nasty people I've met because there's been very few of them. As regards people that go to wrestling, keep on supporting it, keep on encouraging the guys, but most importantly, keep supporting them. And if during lockdown, as the things are at the present, try and get hold of books. The books that we mentioned earlier on are well worth reading. But make sure when the halls reopen and it's possible, go back, support them, because if you don't, it won't happen. Well, I'd just like to say, from my personal point of view, thank you so, so much for doing this interview today. And thank you for all the, the good times that we've shared, you know, sort of over the years. Oh, I can't think of any specifically, but... Probably um, a good thing. <laughs> I'm joking, but um, thank you for this today and this has been an absolutely incredible epic of an interview. Well, thank you very much for asking me to do it. It's the first time I've travelled any distance since the lockdown came about and it's been absolutely worth it. It's getting me back a bit more towards what for me is called normal. Whether anybody else would call me normal is a different matter. So I'd just like to say thank you very very much once again to the legendary, and I use that term with a great deal of sincerity, Mr. John Short. Thank you. Well, that's just about it for another week. Thank you all very, very much for listening. And thank you also to my incredible guest, John Short. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do spread the good word and continue to help us grow by sharing and recommending us to others. You can find all the necessary information on our website, which again is www.conroypod.vze.com. Please do keep an eye out on our social media pages for updates about upcoming episodes. So until next time, this is Carl Stewart, signing off, 
and saying goodbye and thank you.